I wanted to at least explore the nuclear option um, that often gets asked, can we just go to court in some way and have a board member legally removed from the board? Most people are not equipped to understand the seemingly endless facets of an HOA. That's why we're here, to help you become uncommonly prepared to serve your HOA. Whether you're a board member or a manager, join us in the Uncommon Area. Welcome to the Uncommon Area. I'm Matthew Holbrook, and this episode is all about dealing with the seemingly difficult board members. And joining me to discuss this topic is Jane Blassingham of Whitney Petchel, and um, appreciate you being part of this episode. Um, I know you've had some experience and uh, different opportunities to, to um, be helpful in situations where there were board members that were deemed to be difficult. And I think the scenario that I kind of wanted to explore in this episode is... What happens when we have, let's say, four out of five board members that are all reasonably aligned, they get along well, but there's this one outlier, difficult board member who is out of step, maybe causing problems, making things difficult, potentially even harmful to the association. Um, what can a board of directors do about somebody like that? So to get this started, I thought we could... Um, uh, Go through the scenario. If somebody were to call you, let's say a board president, and they say, hey, we have this really difficult board member um, as a part of our board, what are our options? What can we do about that? What would you, what would be your initial response and what would you want to know about that scenario? Well, the first thing I think about when there's potentially a difficult board member is that we all have individual personalities. And the makeup of the board obviously is going to be very different. And sometimes you have a group of like-minded individuals who are on the same path uh, and have the same priorities for the community. Uh, but sometimes you don't and you have differences of opinion. And so that's what I like to determine is, first of all, what exactly is the conflict that we're talking about? Is it just differences of opinion or is this becoming more of an issue that it's perhaps a fiduciary duty issue? So a, a breach of that director's fiduciary duties, or is it perhaps potentially implicating the association in legal risk and legal issues? So the first thing I typically ask a manager is, um, can you provide me with some examples? Um, particularly if you have emails uh, that have been sent or uh, give me an idea of what's going on in the board meetings and what's being discussed. And I like to get all of that information so I can review to see, again, are we just talking about personality conflict uh, or are we talking about larger issues that need to be dealt with? So there's kind of three things that you've just brought up right out the gate. One, difficult does not necessarily mean bad or Correct. even harmful. Sometimes difficult just might be a different perspective and might actually be beneficial to the association. So that's, that's possible if there's somebody who's just bringing a different perspective. Um, but then you move into two categories that you've, uh, you've brought up that might be on a, in a different category. And that is a board member who is 
um, not uh, acting in accordance with their fiduciary responsibilities or a board member who might actually be, because of their actions, exposing the association to potential liability. So let's walk through those um, without being overly specific. What are like the types of things or some examples of what might constitute a breach of fiduciary duty for a, for a board member? An example of a breach of fiduciary duty is perhaps not agreeing with the rest of the board on a matter that's being voted on, uh, which is, that's not in itself a breach. Uh, Of course, you have people who vote differently on the board. But once the board has voted on a matter, uh, it's usual in the bylaws to provide that a vote of the majority of the board is a decision of the board. And once that decision has been made, then all directors, including directors who disagreed and perhaps may have voted the other way, are now obligated to comply with that because that is the majority decision of the board. And sometimes you'll have directors who are not happy. They were on the opposing side uh, and voted differently from the majority of the board. And so they go and tell their neighbors, uh, people outside of the board. And where it can be particularly an issue is when it's an executive session matter. Uh, So if it's a matter that involves a legal opinion from the association's legal counsel, or it's a disciplinary matter for a homeowner, and this homeowner is now disclosing to people outside of the board what the board decided and why. Um, And that could implicate uh, an issue for now we we just have broken the attorney-client privilege and, and different matters like that. So that's just an example. Um, you know, social media is so prevalent today, and it's hard to tell directors not to be on social media, and you can't, uh, that that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, but it's very important for directors to be aware of what they are putting on social media, and that leads to a lot of fiduciary duties as well is directors going further than they should um, and perhaps members not understanding what is the boundaries of, are they speaking as a director of the association or are they speaking as just a member? So there's three kind of subcategories that I'm hearing from you on fiduciary duty, at least things that you've outlined. Um, You have a, um, a board member who um, will start, we'll kind of go in reverse, um, is on social media or in any other platform uh, where they might be misconstrued or misunderstood or maybe even purposefully representing a position that is not the position of the board. Um, so would that be consistent with kind of what you're outlining? Somebody right. has somebody could reasonably rely on what they are saying as a position of the board, and maybe it's not. Correct. Um, secondly, if there is what we might call a leak Um, from executive session that can be traced back to a board member. Mm -hmm. Information getting out that um, should not be be made public or shouldn't be going beyond the board members themselves. And then the first um, point that you had raised would be a board member who might be undermining or even going against an overall board decision that they disagree with that the other board members have made. And so maybe an example, you can tell me if this is getting at what you're talking about or not, but an example might be a board reviews some proposals. They approve a proposal from one contractor. One board member thinks, no, we should have gone with another contractor. And maybe they go have a private conversation with that contractor and either, um, feed them information that they shouldn't, that would give them an unfair competitive advantage, or maybe even um, 
you could go so far as they could be lying entirely saying, hey, you've got this contract to do this work. The contractor starts reasonably relying on that information and then it turns out that the association has a problem mm -hmm. because of that. Is that a fair outline of the, the types of things that you were just yes. saying? Mm -hmm. And then you'd also mentioned um, that a, a board member could conceivably put the association in some type of legal jeopardy or legal liability. Mm -hmm. What might be types of things that that, that could look like? Uh, an example, what I spoke about before was the um, breach of the attorney-client privilege. Right. So if legal counsel is working with the association, and I'm thinking of a lawsuit. So if the association is working with legal counsel and there's a lawsuit, and we have a director who discloses information, that would perhaps be beneficial to the other side in the lawsuit. Uh, that's not generally known. Uh, that could be lead to liability. Um, another example is, and I'll just give a, a real word, world example. Uh, we had a, a director on a board uh, that uh, was wanted, there was a home for sale within the community. She wanted her brother to purchase the home. And so every time she'd see a realtor take a client through the home to view it, she would run over there and tell that realtor and that client all the things that were wrong with the home because she wanted to drive down the price of the home so that her brother could purchase it. And so, of course, the next thing is we get a letter from an attorney for the owner of that property saying um, the entire board and the association is going to be sued uh, for decreasing the market value of the property. Um, that's another example where there could be liability because, of course, the board then met, formed an executive committee, uh, met to discuss this matter, and we sent a letter to the director who did this saying, you are not an agent of the association in this matter. You are acting completely outside of your fiduciary duties, and if there's any liability that results from this, the association is going to be looking to you for that. So you could you could have uh, a board member acting in such ways that they are legitimately exposing the association to real dollars, real liability expense, mm -hmm. and um, and that could put a board member into this position of being a difficult or, or a problem board member. Yes. So then the question is, so um, somebody calls you and explains these situations. You determine, yes, this is a case where we have a board member who is breaching their fiduciary duty. They are exposing the association to liability. And the board member now says, okay, now what do we do about this at this point? What, what now? The first thing I always ask is, uh, does the association have a director code of conduct? Because that is very important to have in place. And I know some associations, of course, when you have a cohesive board, you do not have issues, doesn't come up and there really isn't a need for the director code of conduct but that is actually when you want to adopt one is when you have everybody on the same page because you will eventually uh, get a problem board member and if you already have that director code of conduct in place it just makes it a lot easier to address those issues that have come up yeah. um, and I have uh, one community that I work with actually a couple who have social media policies for directors as a part of that code of conduct it's actually it's part of the code of conduct it's actually a, a separate standalone document um, and 
uh, it came up with this uh, particular director uh, that uh, he or she was posting things on social media and it was causing disruptions in the board and causing potential liability issues. So to have that social media policy in place, it was much easier to go back and discuss with this director. So the first thing that I, beyond first ascertaining whether they have a director code of conduct in place, um, the first thing I always recommend is let's get an executive committee formed of all directors except for this one director. And once that executive committee is formed, then the executive committee can meet and we can discuss the issues and what the next steps are going to be for the executive committee in addressing this matter. All right. So let's walk through all of that here for just a second. First of all, for um, action managed associations, um, we can just comment that we do have sample code of conduct, codes of conduct, would that be the right way to say that? Mm-hmm. Um, documents as well as social media policies that boards can review and, and uh, can work from. Um, but having those policies in place, that does give the board a little bit of teeth in enforcement with, with board members. So um, I, I think we walk through here kind of what that teeth looks like. So you proposed, and uh, we've certainly done this um, plenty of times, where we form an executive committee that excludes the, the one board member that there's concern about that might be um, breaching their fiduciary duty, causing the association liability. This executive committee, what are the limitations of what they can and can't do in that executive committee? The executive committee, of course, needs to act within its bylaws and its CCNRs. And there are limitations as to the board's authority. Um, In most cases, uh, the bylaws will not allow a board to remove a director from the board. Uh, Sometimes bylaws will include language, uh, but it's rare. And it's usually only membership, a uh, membership vote, a recall vote uh, that can remove a director. Now, there's other options. Um, you have your officer positions. So, um, and this is misunderstood a lot of times. Um, and so I will have boards ask me, well, it says in our bylaws that we can remove the officers. So we want to remove this director from the board. Um, and d- directors and offices are different. So directors are elected by the members and officers are appointed by the board. And what that means is that once there is an election um, and you have your new board members who have come on to the board, then the board votes on who's going to be vice president, who's going to be secretary, who's going to be president. And that is is a tool that the executive committee can use as well is if this director is in a position, let's say the treasurer, um, the board can vote and remove them from that treasurer position. And I've had instances where this is the director's identity is to be the treasurer. Right. And it's a, it's a very important thing for them. And so as from removing them from that officer role, that does carry some disciplinary effect. Um, in conjunction with that, they could remove um, them from committees as well, right? Yes, they can remove them from committees because committees serve at the pleasure of the board. So, for example, if you have somebody who holds the officer position of a treasurer, they chair the finance committee for the association, the executive committee could remove that board member from being treasurer, from being the chair of the finance committee, and they move to being a member at large. They're still a, mem- uh, a member of the board of directors, but just not the treasurer and not on that committee. Yes, that is correct. And it's usual for 
a lot of times, whatever the issues are with the director, it's usual for them to be tied to their position, their officer role or their committee role. Um, so it's really not a stretch to walk them back from that and remove them from those positions. Uh, there's always the opportunity to do a censure, uh, which is a, a reprimand, a written or a verbal reprimand of the director, which can be done in private and executive session. Um, it can always be done in a regular session as well, but I always say to exercise caution on that because you don't want to be in the position of any defamation issues or anything like that. Right. So what's the value of doing that in executive session? The value of doing it in executive session is it just gets it on the record. It, it really holds no disciplinary effect other than to get it on the record that this director has been censured and why, and perhaps add a layer of protection for the association and the other directors so that if a lawsuit's filed, we can go back and see that the board was not complicit in this. The board was doing what it could within its powers to address it. And a lot of times you'll have political pressure that's being brought against the board. So if this director is causing disruptions in the community, you may have members looking to the board saying, what are you going to do about this? Um, what are, when, when are you going to remove this director from the board? Um, and of course you have to explain, uh, we can't remove a director from the board, but it's typical for them not to understand that. But if you can, again, not be giving out confidential disciplinary information, but be giving information that the board is direct addressing it within its governing documents and within its authority, that will help. And then you could do a public censure in regular session mm -hmm. of, a, of a board meeting. The positive side of that is you might shame the board member and have some value that comes out of that in, in mm -hmm. getting them to back off of what they've been doing. The downside is, is you shame that board member and now you, as you've alluded to, kind of potentially open the door to some type of a defamation claim if that's not crafted very carefully. You, you have to anticipate that if you're going to do a uh, censure disclosure in a regular session meeting, there is going to be some kind of blowback for the association. It may just be that this uh, director becomes extremely irate and upset more than they maybe already are um, and directs more wrath at the rest of the board members. It could be that they hire an attorney and start threatening uh, litigation. If uh, a board wants to censure a director in regular session, I always look at, okay, what are we censuring them for? It's basically on a case-by-case -case basis. And then I prefer that they read out a statement that legal counsel has prepared for them instead of them going off the cuff with giving the censure. How far can a board go with the, um, the reach of an executive committee? Um, in other words, could a board form an executive committee to address issues that are not directly related to um, the actions of one board member, but other types of things going on in the community that maybe the, the, the other board members want to exclude that one board member from? Yes, and that's a very good question because that does happen. Sometimes the executive committee thinks, wow, this is really nice. We all get along right. and now we can meet without this other board member. Let's talk about this other issue that's totally unrelated, perhaps a contract. And yes, that does happen. And so what I recommend is that the executive committee drafts a resolution that says specifically the reasons why they were formed, um, formed as, as an executive committee, what they're going to be discussing. And, and that sets the boundaries and the parameters for what they 
can and can't discuss. And I will still get questions. Um, can we discuss this as part of executive session? And I think that's great that they're asking instead of just going ahead and discussing it. Um, and then also, you know, some executive committees like the legal counsel to be involved at each meeting. And that helps as well, too, um, to direct the meeting. So we're only speaking about those things. And the reason is because that, that director uh, who may be disciplined and who has been excluded from the executive committee is still a director on the board and still has all the rights of a director and has the right to hear and vote on matters not related to this disciplinary action. But there could be things like, uh, for example, if the issue for that one board member is they are disclosing information from executive session relating to some legal matters, you form an executive committee to investigate and to talk about that breach of fiduciary duty that that board member engaged in. But you might also include for that executive committee um, within their parameters that those legal matters that were previously leaked about, maybe this board member is excluded from discussions going forward. Would that, would that be reasonable? That can happen. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a, an executive committee that was formed um, because of, I'll call it a rogue uh, board member. And the executive committee was formed for reasons other than disciplinary information that may or may not have been disclosed. Subsequent to the executive committee being formed, it was discovered that this rogue director was giving information to members outside of the board about disciplinary hearings. Um, not just one, but several different disciplinary hearings involving different matter members. And we had sufficient justification and evidence that this was happening. It wasn't just a rumor or we thought um, it was happening. And so the executive committee actually took the extra step and excluded that director from all future disciplinary hearings in executive session. Um, it made it a little difficult for that executive committee because they had to meet some extra times to now do hearings outside of their regular executive session. Um, but it was justified in that case because we had evidence that this director was disclosing disciplinary information about other members. So we've talked about the formation of executive committees. We've talked about removal of officers um, from their officer positions, removal of board members from their committee positions. We've talked about censures. Um, what about uh, a, a non-compliance enforcement route, inviting to a hearing? Um, if a board member is speaking out of turn and misrepresenting information, let's say on social media, since that's a common thing that's coming up, is that something for which noncompliance letters and hearings and fines can ultimately happen? Or uh, what, what, in what scenarios could a board pursue that type of an approach? Well, a code of conduct, a social media policy, they are not adopted usually through the rulemaking process of Civil Code Section 4360. So typically they're not sent to the members for the 28-day review period because they don't apply to the entire membership. They don't apply to the common area. They're strictly a policy for the board. So the question is, can you call 
a, a director to a hearing for violation of the code of conduct. And I think it comes down to how much risk that that particular executive committee, that particular association is willing to take on. Um, we had a very egregious case uh, where it was justified and the executive committee determined it was necessary to take the risk to do that. Um, so we actually did call a director for breach of the director code of conduct and the social media policy several times, several different hearings. Um, and the executive committee leveled fines. Um, and it was a tool in order to gain compliance. So um, the risk there is they, lev- they levy the fines. Let's say the board member refuses to pay the fines. The association's only recourse at that point is to take legal action to collect the fines. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately there the risk is the association could incur legal costs and then ultimately not even collect the fines. And maybe even worse, you can tell me if I'm getting this all wrong, but not only do they incur the legal costs, not collect the fines, um, if they lose on that, they might embolden or empower that board member to continue doing what they're doing at an even greater level. Am I getting that all right? That's right. So for to collect the fines, you could take them to small claims court, um, or the member, the director could file a lawsuit against the association, perhaps the individual board members. It could just be for declaratory relief, saying court, please determine whether the uh, executive committee had the authority to level fines against me for violations of the director code of conduct and or social media policy. Or it could be a breach of fiduciary uh, duties claim. Um, And then, of course, when things go to lawsuit, you're now considering attorney's fees. And if this director were to prevail, then the association would be responsible for attorney's fees. So All right, let's, let's unpack the ugliness of that for just a second. The, the, the board levies fines for violation of the code of conduct. The fines are against a board member who then turns around and files a lawsuit that in some way claims breach of fiduciary duty of the other board members, names them individually. Um, I know this isn't necessarily... I don't think in your um, wheelhouse, but um, DNO policy um, would or would not like. If I understand this correctly, maybe I'm, I might be off base, but a DNO policy would cover the defense of a claim of breach of fiduciary duty. But if they were to, if if that if that claim were to prevail, then potentially the DNO policy would not cover that. I'm not an insurance expert, right. and I I can't sit pretend that I am, but my understanding is that uh, DNO will typically pick up and, and cover that unless there is some type of willful misconduct. So, um, if, they're, so if they're demonstrating that they are acting in the best interest of the association, mm-hmm. business judgment rule, acting as an ordinary prudent person would in a similar situation, there's justification for the mm-hmm. act, the, the, the decision that they made. Yeah, so then the, the DNO policy... Yeah, my understanding would be would cover that. So that would that would be different than what I just said. I, I would also think about to the political impact on the association. So the members may not be wanting the association to be spending money in for lack of a better term, going after this director, trying to gain this director's compliance. So if you have there could potentially be a lot of funds expended. Um, in trying to fight this particular director. And so that's always something politically that the board, the executive committee needs to consider as well. 
Um, and uh, we have a client who de- de- decided, the executive committee decided it was warranted to attempt to get an injunction against this director for very, very egregious behavior against another director. Um, and that costs money. Um, and the, the membership is seeing that this money is being outlaid. And so that's always something that the board executive committee needs to consider as part of its determination of how it's going to proceed forward. So the considerations there to take a non-compliance route, I think maybe the first thing, and this is maybe a more broad statement that not all board members always understand, but when we talk about non-compliance enforcement, there has to be something that is not being complied with. Um, And generally, we're talking about the CCNRs, the rules and regulations. You made the point that um, typically a code of conduct for the board or a social media policy is not a part of the rules and regs. Um, I guess before I go any further, could a board theoretically attach them to the rules and regs, put it out for comment, and then adopt them as a part of the rules and regulations and then have maybe a little more teeth for that enforcement? Yes, they could do that. Again, it's not really a rule that's covered by 4360, so I'm not sure how far that would argument would go, but they definitely Gives could do one, it and make an argument further. that, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, and then if, if a board is going to go the the route of imposing fines related to um, a violation of the code of conduct or social media policy. The board would then just have to weigh the reality that there's a certain risk potentially um, associated with that, and they might have to ultimately make a legal justification for why they did what they did, and that could be a risk of potential legal costs or even um, counter-legal action from... Um, the opposing party. So Yes, and I, I think what's important is to, again, consider this on a case-by-case b- basis the and the particular counsel. situation, yes, and um, in uh, consultation with your legal counsel, the association's legal counsel, about what the best course of action is to take. In the particular instance that this was used, it was a uh, very, very bad situation for the association and for the directors. Um, and the executive committee was looking for every avenue it could take to try to resolve this issue. So as we uh, start to bring this to a close, um, I wanted to at least explore the nuclear option um, that often gets asked where board members come back and they say, look, we've we've done the censure, we've gone the non-compliance enforcement route, we've removed them from an officer position, we've um, removed them from committees. Uh, we formed our executive committee and and carved um, them out where we can. Um, and there's still significant problems. There are problems that are exposing the association to liability. There's continued breach of fiduciary responsibility. Can't we just remove them from the board? You alluded to this earlier. In rare cases, um, bylaws may allow for that, but generally not. Um, and, and so... Um, Generally, what we're saying is is that that, that would then require um, a recall of the board according to the bylaws and walking through those steps to either recall an individual board member, which is usually harder to do than to recall the whole board and then let the chips fall where they may as to who gets um, elected at that point. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to get at is apart from all of that, is there ever an option where a board can say, okay, our bylaws don't allow for us to remove um, a board member for whatever reason, it's not feasible to get the membership to vote on this. Can we just 
go to court in some way and have a board member legally removed from the board? Under the corporation's code, uh, there is the ability to petition the court to have a director removed, but the circumstances are very limited. Um, I was asked uh, in one particular situation is they wanted to have the director removed for mental incompetence, and uh, they wanted to be able to go to court and submit that. But the uh, threshold is very high of what you would have to show, and you would need to get an opinion uh, from a qualified expert uh, who would likely need to interview this person. Um, You probably have battling experts. I think it would be very, very difficult to... uh, I've actually never seen it justified to be able to take it to a court to try to get the person removed. Um, You could potentially have a member file a shareholder derivative action um, and and get a director removed through a shareholder derivative action. Uh, But again, that would be difficult and it would be the member who'd have to bring it against the association, um, which, you know, most members would not be willing to do that. Um, So yes, there is a court process, but I think very, very difficult to get that to actually happen. Yeah. Well, that's very helpful. Is there anything that I haven't asked about or that we haven't talked about on this subject that might be helpful? Again, I think I would repeat that it's very important to have a director code of conduct in place. And it's often overlooked when you have cohesive boards that get along with each other. But like I said, that's the time to get it into place so you at least have that tool. Um, The Recent changes to the election laws uh, make it a little bit more difficult because we have now limited uh, qualifications that we can apply to candidates. And that's another reason why I think that the director code of conduct is important to show them in advance. And when they get on the board, this is how the director is supposed to act. Is that code of conduct good ongoing or does it have to be renewed with every new board? No, it's good ongoing. So it would be good and healthy to review Mm -hmm. that with after Mm -hmm. every election or every time Mm -hmm. the board changes in any way. I do have some boards that want to update or change it specific to a specific director that's on the board that may not, that conduct that the director is engaging in may not be directly addressed in the director code of conduct and they want it updated uh, for that reason. The other thing, and I'm not pushing (laughs) um, for legal fees, but I do think it's important, and a lot of law firms will do it for free, is a board orientation. And to uh, get, as soon as you get new board members on the board who may not be aware of what fiduciary duties even are um, and and what they are supposed to and not supposed to do, to get them to go through a board orientation. And sometimes the management companies do it as well. and so then they at least have in their hands this information and have been informed of the information. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, I think where I would um, leave things at on this subject is uh, just going back to that point that a difficult board member is not always a bad board member. And I think that, that sometimes or oftentimes that's probably more likely the case. It's somebody who has a different perspective, a different viewpoint. Um, It might make things more difficult for the rest of the board, but if the rest of the board can find ways to embrace that varying opinion, um, benefit from that, and still move forward, you're going to be a lot better off than going down some of these other actions that, um, yeah, we we both know that sometimes they're necessary, but it does create more of a um, 
uh, a war type of footing between board members as opposed to um, a partnership or a working together. So um, count the cost before starting down those roads right. for boards. Yes. So, well, that concludes this episode. I hope that that was helpful for you. And uh, I would encourage you to continue um, looking for other helpful episodes of The Uncommon Area. Thank you.